Yeah, Tom. Hey, do you know the group Troller? You ever heard of them? Sorry, you you broke up just as you said the group's name. Really? Yeah. Uh, blues Traveler. Oh, Blues Traveler. Yes, yes, I know Blues Traveler. <laughs> oh, God, I was just listening to uh, The Mountains Win Again. Oh, okay. And uh, I, I just had to hear the end of it. <laughs> not a problem. No, not a problem. I know, uh, I know Blues Traveler um, in passing. I'm not sure if I own any of their stuff. I think. Are you familiar with The Mountains Win Again? Uh, I'll go and listen to it. Why don't you put just the track that concludes this podcast to make it easy? For well, it's all. I can tell you, it's number five. It's if you just go back to five thirty-one, whatever that was, you can skip the rest of it. <laughs> it's at the end of five thirty-one. Okay, very good. Very good. <laughs> Huh. So yeah, I just stumbled onto it again, uh-huh. and uh, you know, and every and I, have, I probably haven't listened to it in a year or more, you know. But every time I listen to it, I'm just stunned by that piece of music. You know, it's just they're. Preci- I mean, there's a lot of rock groups, but they play with such precision. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not just. You know, they, it's, I know anyway, I, I'm blown away by those guys. Or at least that song. I've heard some of their other stuff that doesn't impress me that much, but this particular song just knocks me out. Very cool. Okay, I'm so I'm done with that. Now we can we can talk. So how have you been? You, you've oh, I've been, been sick well for a period of time, haven't you? Yes, this is the longest sickness I've had in probably 40 years since I started taking vitamin C. I'm still not back to 100%. I almost went to the gym today, but uh, decided against it because I have a lot of audio editing to do. So I've been putting in time <laughs> doing that. Very good, very good. Yes, well, I've I've been uh, I've been busy as well as I was as I was assembling uh, lists of things to talk about, it occurred to me that uh, I just feel in some regard that I've been almost like a limp doll through my kind of workaday life because it's just the easiest way to cope with it. Yeah. Making up for lost time in terms of writing and various other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which unfortunately doesn't really overlap very well with our traditional speaking times. Um, but also when I get home... Actually, it's funny, I, I was talking with a co-worker today, and he was saying through the kind of work that we do, he loses his ability to speak. And I said, well, that's the reason I continue to maintain these podcasts, because it forces me mm, to actually yeah. have extended conversations <laughs> and actually think about what uh-huh. I'm saying in real time. Yeah, that's right. You're right. If you don't go to the trouble, uh, you do lose it, don't you? Yes, yeah, very much so. And I think wow. particularly if you're dealing And how did he deal with that? And that's, he just finds that that's acceptable to him? He's considering going to Toastmasters, which was his thought. <laughs> well, that's that's okay. That's better than that. At least he'll be around people talking. Certainly, yes. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. it's funny because um, there are certain various abstract logical constructs that one has to deal with when one spends a lot of time working with computers, and it does remove you. You can't think of language in the same kind of absolute. Oh, no, it's a whole different exactly. domain. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. just a completely different domain. You're right, absolutely. But yeah. in terms of the kind of... I, I found either I could fight the work circumstances or I could just allow it to take me, which is what I've been doing for the past, what, three or four weeks since we last talked anyway. And that has been a good way of actually dealing with it and certainly coming home and just getting into this writing... Um, and in parallel to this, I guess I've got various book updates associated with Field of Chaos. Mm. Um, I've tried uh, various passive techniques in terms of just finding the top 20-odd reviewers and sending them physical copies. And I thought, having done that, 
this is really stupid. This isn't why I've done anything like this previously. It's uh -huh. way too passive. So out of my contact list, there's one fellow in particular who's still... I was a source for him through 2000 uh, when I lived in the Bay Area. And he's someone who... Um, I mean, you supplied him his drugs or what? No, I supplied You're... him his information. I was, oh, uh, okay. I was a, oh. a story um, prompter, I guess. I don't even know what one would call it. But I guess these journalists who've been doing this thing for, the, I guess, the past 30, 40-odd years um, have have always had a degree of... Well, I've always had sources, basically. And I was... Okay. Um, not in terms of giving away company secrets or anything like that, but just tracking... There's people to come to, you know, you had to ask questions about stuff. Um, like in some yeah. part, he, he mainly yeah. came to me for story ideas because my perceptions, I guess, were still relatively <coughs> fresh and weren't part of this hype culture that has really always played <laughs> Silicon Valley in particular. And I gave him a few eclectic stories. I think he wrote on some of them. I just can't recall off the top of my head because the nature of these calls were... Um, well, not frequent, but certainly periodic, uh, and I'd have a good discussion with him. My connection with him came through the phone hacker, John Draper. Um, but again, this is something that I don't necessarily want to talk about too much unless it actually yields something, because it could fall completely flat on its face. But it has got me thinking very dynamically about how... Well, firstly, there was a discussion that we had that I found really quite insightful. I can't recall which one it was specifically. But you talked about this idea of the book as a product. And I remember that made me feel very dirty at the time. And I tried <laughs> Yeah, it is dirty. You're right. Construct. <laughs> it is. I, up until today, actually, I was thinking about this today, that the notion <laughs> of a product in this abstract sense comes very much from, I guess, the, the 1980s in terms of a kind of... Or the fifties, even you know. Well, I mean, the fifties. I've I've watched. Um, I put off watching Helvetica, uh, but I watched Helvetica over the weekend, uh, mainly because I knew what the film was about and just wanted to put off watching it. The thing that took from me that I took from it that I hadn't appreciated on some level was the idea of Helvetica as a rebranding approach and this notion of font as rebranding, which I guess I'd always yeah. had some concept of. But I remember back in, I guess, probably... It was just after my parents got divorced, so probably 1989, uh, the local university produced um, graphic design forms for the... Um, they had some... They had a... a um, like an academic computer centre that was called ANU Tech. The university, uh, Australian National University, was is, and still is always abbreviated to ANU. And they had some very abstract fonts and a general discussion associated with this emerging, you know, desktop publishing thing that was going on, uh, which, of course, you were on the vanguard of with your, uh, uh, what was it, the Pocket Poet or whatever it was um, back in... Oh, the Computer Poet. The Computer Poet back, yeah. in, um, back in the mid-80s. And I remember looking at this. Um, it was... I had a couple of boxes of stuff that um, through my mother being a diplomat when I left Australia, the stuff was immediately put into storage, her broader storage that she got through, um, you know, the department that she worked for. And two boxes were lost from that. And those two boxes contained some of the most nutritious and interesting things from my life um, previously. So there's a strange kind of... Also, all the photographs as well. When I first moved to the US, all the photos I had were in a small box that I sent on. 
and it was as I was told left out on the docks and rained on. <laughs> so I received, I sent myself maybe twelve <sighs> small boxes. Uh, or 13 boxes and only 12 turned up and the final one eventually turned up in a brown cardboard box that was smaller than it but higher and when I opened it up it was literally just this paper mush stuff with uh, and that was my photographs I had one programming book in there that I saved and then gave on to a fellow in the UK um, but basically that was my entire photographic record completely destroyed when I first moved here yeah. Um, which gave me a strange sense of identity, but similarly the stuff um, from Australia. So, for example, like the original writings of Field of Chaos, all the original, um, not photographs even, they were scanned images that I'd done various manipulations to. These exist in maybe three or four copies that only a small number of people have. My friend in Australia has one, and he keeps, well, for the past six, maybe eight weeks, he's been saying, oh, yes, I'll send it, oh, yes, I'll send it. Well, I offered to send him money, but he seems to be out of contact now he would be a very interesting stone ape recording and i'm thinking that uh he will probably eventually appear in the stone ape feed because he's well if i can actually get a hold of him after doing all the things that he had done he's now doing a graphic art degree at a place called lismore which is on the northern new south wales coast it was actually affected by the flooding but anyway he has one of these uh one of these original field of chaos prints that he says he'll send me and i'll i'll scan up but in this box was a wide variety of things, including uh, books that had been uh, particularly impactful and a lot of personal documents. So it is this kind of curious thing that I recall these things and then think, oh, that was in you know one of those two boxes. When I got back to Australia most recently, so what, two odd years ago with my wife, my mother told me that I had lost a lot more stuff than that, including my record collection. And I, she said, all that is available is in a room, but we can't I can't give you access to the room. This was in her house. I was in her house. I walked in. She said, the room is locked. And I said, this is ridiculous. I've flown. I've been out of Australia for 10 years. I've flown all this way. I'd like to have access to my possessions that remain, please. Uh, so there was a long negotiation for about an hour and a half through a dinner meal. And then finally, towards the end of dinner, she could tell that I wasn't really eating and was generally distraught about the idea that I'd lost a good portion of of me, basically, in possession form at least, which wasn't a huge amount anyway. I mean, that was the amazing thing that out of, you know, maybe ten boxes at most, they had lost two. <laughs> yeah, you did pretty good, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I kept all my records, thankfully. So, I mean, at least I have an audio, um, I have an audio mapping of my uh, of my records. Um, well, I think so. I think it's a pretty good, uh, an accurate representation. Anyway, I haven't thought of anything that isn't there. And my brother had also digitized a good portion of it to MP3 as well. I still haven't bought a record player actually here, which would uh, enable me to listen to that. But anyway, so through this writing, I've been thinking very heavily about what Field of Chaos actually means as a product, going back to your original uh, hypothesis. And in thinking about it as a product, I really think it's something that can stay on the shelf for pretty well indefinitely. I mean, I have this sense, which is what we do through podcasts, that basically by putting the ideas out, eventually people will come, and the immediacy of people coming is really independent of the value of the information. So, yeah, the only question is whether they stick. <laughs> from the feedback that I've received from people that have read Field of Chaos, it's certainly a text that has stuck with them, um, or stuck with a few at least. Yeah, well, the ones you've heard from, yes. That's... Proportion, exactly. The, yeah. And the other point that has been made, which is very interesting, is that the people 
who have communicated with me, a good number of them have read it multiple times, uh-huh. which also gives me a clear indication that the, the, sh- the brevity that I sought in the format was the right way to go. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm and com- and and the, and the intention is obviously that uh, you can't that the second time through you have a different perspective completely on different. it, and, and yeah, it's a completely right. different read. And yeah. I think that's the right. feedback that I've received to the point where um, people have read it. You know, uh, well, more than once, and each each one that I um, receive communication from, you know, they have taken different things from it, which I think is you know the. Uh, that's what you'd expect. Exactly. This, this <laughs> is the aim of doing. So anyway, in, in writing, there is a. my original thought was to do a very similar format with the sequel. But the sequel basically explores a period... Well, it, it explores both a relatively fictionalised account of what was going on in parallel, and also then my own experiences in terms of, um, well, moving to the US fundamentally, and then experiences in the UK. So from my own life experience, it's 95 through to about 2001. And the thing that I've found is that actually the, the my experiences through that time have been sufficiently interesting to kind of dissect. And previously what I'd done, which I talked to you about, was print out print out emails through Lulu, send, um, you know, however many, 1,200-odd pages to Lulu to print, and then to go through the emails. And that had a huge emotional impact on me, and it was clearly the wrong form. What I have done now is taken the photographs over this period, which I have actually a good number of, uh, and kind of collect together a photo gallery of maybe 16 or 20 photos that basically create the structure of the writing, which I'm, a large portion I've already written. I mean, this is the strange thing, that the photos are actually slotting in with the writing. And as that was a form that I started experimenting with in Field of Chaos, I think there's a form that can continue in the sequel quite comfortably. And then what I'll do is rip out the fictionalised account, because I think the more that I work on it, the more that I realise that actually what occurred from 95 through to 2001 merits its own um, unmolested, what a better term, write text, rather than kind of continuing to play with the field of chaos intertwining. Although, that being said, you know, the field of chaos intertwining came as a kind of secondary thing anyway. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. But I'm getting a lot of keyboard time currently, and my plan is actually to buy a new laptop because the one that I have is, I don't even know how old it is now. It's uh, its more than 10 years old, and really <laughs> showing its age. 10 years. So, Jesus. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have two laptops, actually. I have a G3, and I have a PowerBook 1400. Jeez. And I can't, I can't yeah. part with the PowerBook 1400, but the G3 is really giving up the ghost. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's time. And, and you can get them on eBay relatively cheap. I don't like the ones on eBay. I've been looking at the ones on eBay. I've bought I've, every, well, my last two MacBook Pros yeah. I bought off eBay, and I'm, I couldn't be that, happier. Yeah, I've had coworkers that have bought off eBay, and similarly, they seem to be, they seem to be positive. Well, what would be the problem? I mean, the comp- it's either a new computer or it's not. Mm. I'm not talking about buying used stuff. Ah, okay. So my experience buying from eBay previously has been, but I've always bought his, I mean, both these laptops I've actually bought from, off, um, I can't think, I think the G3 I actually purchased here. So I must have purchased the G3 in 2006. I had a G3, and both of them are actually replacement computers for computers that I'd owned previously that I really liked. Um, the PowerBook um, 1400 in particular, I just really like that form. The new 13-inch MacBooks 
are obviously much thinner, but basically replicate that form. And I think that will be the next computer that I get. They're nice. Uh, but why I, do you why do you have a portable? I mean, you 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 have a, a floor top machine there. I assume a I real computer. I have a Mac Mini. Okay. Uh, oh, really? That's yeah. oh, okay. And it's a first generation uh-huh. Intel Mac Mini that I got with the yeah. um, discount. I, it's so you don't do you how how what's the biggest monitor you have? Uh, I'm currently talking to you. I think it's a 19 inch. I don't know. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't go. I'm actually very with televisions. How many monitors stuff, do you have? Uh, I mean, well, you have I more do, than one monitor. I, have one monitor. I don't even do that at work. Actually, it's funny okay. because I. I find that I can actually. Work God, I quite didn't know I was talking to a ludite. Oh no, I'm not a I'm not a ludite so much as someone who um, I'm very particular about everything in my life, Heron. It's not just with regards to computing. No, I know that. Sorry. I just I'm so. I mean, to me, it just for me anyway. It's I. You live in a very different universe than I do, I guess. But my ability to think and use a computer is really dependent upon how many pixels are available. Mm. It's just that simple. Hmm. I, so yeah. I go for the hugest number of pixels I can possibly get on the largest possible screen. Yeah, no, my wife does that too, and I'm exactly the opposite. I don't. I That's don't, so strange. To me, the, what, ideas, weird. the ideas exist independently of that. Now, you, you, you. I mean, professionally, but also probably somewhere psychologically, graphic design and the ability. And my wife is the same. The ability to do, you know, I mean, I use Photoshop as well, but I use it for very small, you know, specific things. Yeah, me too. That's all I, I use Photoshop to finish things off. Certainly. So, (laughs) but I guess, I mean, yeah, I think people use computers very differently. And from my physical size, I, I used to know people. And obviously, I mean, my current employer gave me two large monitors and I only use one of them. Well, one's enough. It's just that if I mean, when you're trying to do more than one thing at a time with multiple windows mm-hmm. on a screen, you need as much real estate as possible to yeah, spread stuff I out disagree. so that it, so that it's easy much, to think about I'm, it. No, I'm very much stacking linear. I I'm I live in a tab universe in that regard. I'm, I'm oh, okay. I'm very linear in that thing, and the thing that I find I will even for particularly complicated things. When I need to see complexity, I will put it on paper. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I do that too sometimes. Yeah, yeah, sometimes you need paper. Absolutely. Exactly. So, I mean, my view is that um, my ideas exist in a space which isn't visually on the screen. I mean, when I, I got it, screen, yeah. it's good. But yeah. the screen is just an interface into the ideas. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. I, I guess that's exactly backwards from the way I view. I mean, backwards isn't the right way to say that. But I mean, well, yeah, it is. I mean, without implying better or worse, it, it's the reverse priority set for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess this is the thing that's interesting me with this writing is that I feel very much that firstly. I'm dealing with a very, very... This is the interesting thing, actually, in terms of the written form, because the feedback that I've received initially from, for example, people immediately around me, my wife and her family, is that because they know me, they have an immense fear that what they're going to receive is going to be unintelligible. So I played a game (laughs) with my wife, which was literally read, read the first few pages of Field of Chaos, and when you find a word or a concept that you do not understand, stop. 
And that was, in fact, very enlightening to her because she didn't recoil. I mean, my initial experience introducing her to Field of Chaos was to read the entire text to her out loud over three evenings. Um, which was not because, I mean, she reads heavily. I mean, you know, you know I mean, whose idea was that, yours or hers? That was, well, I gave it to her to read, and she just, I guess immediately because the, the and you've noted this as well, the language is very much my own. Um, she immediately felt the kind of discomfort of wearing someone else's clothes, I guess. And the metering that I had to give her was just to say, if you move from this discomfort, you can actually get something out of this. And this is a curious phenomenon because I, obviously the people who aren't contacting me who've read it may have had some of this experience as well. So I, I guess I'm kind of self-selecting the reader based on the experience that they have initially uh, picking up the book. Um, but yeah, with her, I read it to her, and I have read it out loud. I mean, my initial exposure to it afresh in 2009 when I discovered Lulu and just sent this wad of text to Lulu was reading it out loud was actually reading the word and seeing this is actually fun to read when you read it out loud as well and that was the point that I was making to her initially um and I think also it's it's interesting because the new format of um ah this this bends perfectly into another topic I wanted to talk to you about but this new format of kind of audiobooks and audible makes me think that there is a portion of, you know, Field of Chaos that could be better served, and you've said this as well, in an audiobook form. It's funny because the only example I have of someone who released exclusively an audiobook, um, Lorenzo Haggerty, didn't have much success with it. And oh, you mean he didn't make much money at it? No, or, no, 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 the, no, no. He only 28 people downloaded it. Well, he obviously wasn't doing any marketing Clearly. in any intelligent way or yeah. whatever. You know, I mean, God, I mean, anybody could sell a thousand. But here's the, here's the thing about it, which struck me. I mean, actually, that's quite some distinction. He's, I mean, I'm not sure anybody could do that. But here's, here's the thing <laughs> that struck me about it was because he charged money for it and a reasonable amount of money. I mean, he was charging, I think, $15 for it. Yeah. He has literally tens of thousands of listeners to the Psychedelic Salon, and I think yeah. he put the first chapter out in that format, but he was really looking for it as a means of, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, well, it's a fickle world, man. It it's, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. It is. But anyway, so Field of Curse in terms of a project, um, a, a project associated with a product is something that I'm kind of, currently mainly because I'm so engulfed at work putting on the back burner and concentrating more on the current writing with the view that momentum will, will pick up. Uh, and I'm not particularly worried about it. I'm just really pleased that it's out there and it means that, uh, you know, as I said initially, occasionally I can have really nice conversations about this kind of eclectic piece of consciousness that I normally don't, uh, you know, I don't normally have a, a social intimacy with the people that I meet through the experiences that I've had. But to actually put that out there in like a chunk of text, I'm... I'm uh, you know, understanding, and I'm getting a lot of. Uh, lot of have, how many of these people have you actually talked to with, you know, in voice? Well, what I wanted to do actually was gather together a group of them. Uh, well, I mean, the first, the first one who springs to mind because I already do a podcast with him is, uh, our, well, he, he's recently been reprogrammed, according to him anyway. But our favorite communist listener, Jonathan J. Reinhardt. Because he's someone who I do actually already do a podcast with uh, that has actually done some promotion of Field of Chaos. And I believe uh, he's on his 
second, if not his third reading of it currently. Uh, so he would be someone who would be very useful to talk to. My friend in Australia, who not only features in it heavily, but has read numerous versions, would possibly be another one. I sent a copy to my friend who wrote romantic fiction, uh, and she is just starting it, uh, but seems to be consuming it with some uh, ferocity. There are various other kind of eclectic people who um, who I think may actually work out well in podcast form, but it is, I think, the, the nature of the text and also the fact that communicating with the author is probably distinctly different than just talking with someone about it. And I think there might be an element associated with that, but I'll certainly put it to people like uh, Miriam English, who was the woman who contacted me uh, within six hours of it coming out, and potentially others that there could be a, a series of discussions associated I just, with I just, you know, I am just not satisfied with textual relationships. This is interesting because I, this is exactly the point that I'm making, that I think this, this form is something that I am almost uh, monastically uh, involved with, but you're right, it needs to translate into something other than that. If I, you know, I, to me, my, it's the, my voice communications with people around the world that really serve me, mm. you know, you. and text is part of it. I mean, that's certainly a part of it. That, that's a huge part of it. But it's, if it was just that, well, I wouldn't be playing that game, I don't think. Well, yeah. I never did before either, so. But I think the notion is being multimedia. I mean, is. Well, now, of course, yeah, it's everything. Well, that's the whole thing is now it's all there. I mean, the, the, all the distinctions are gone. And I think in particular, I mean, this, this, and this was what I said to, um, you know, the fellow at the New York Times is that this is a new age of information. And if, if old methods can't embrace that new age then they're just going to fall by the wayside. Yeah, I mean, we, thanks. you know, so, Goodbye. <laughs> so filtering into this audible order, uh, t- um, you know, whatever uh, spoken word book thing uh, in recent weeks. In fact, in the past couple of weeks, I've turned down two sponsors for model rail radio. Um, we've just, well, we're coming up to, I think we'll, easily hits we're like 20 shy of 16,000 listeners as a so, so somebody actually contacted you yes. offering to give you money to advertise their product certainly <laughs> the first was cool. the first was All audible right. so and their um, shtick was based on listener sign up now this is something that I've seen with other podcasts that have been what I would think Probably, you know, an order of magnitude. More well, that, yeah, wait a minute. Uh, when you say, what do you mean, sign? You mean you get paid every time somebody actually spends some money or registers exactly. anyway on their site? Exactly. Yeah. Now, well, because, well, they can't lose on that. No, they can't. <laughs> well, I, neither can you either. <laughs> well, no. Here's the problem. You see, even the even the biggest podcasts that have audible sponsorship then devote about fifteen minutes of their programs. Too audible. And- Fifteen minutes yes. out of the each hour. Yes. Oh bullshit! Fuck that. Well, that's that's the nature. <laughs> yeah. Is that if you're trying to get the numbers went up to um, 
I, I probably need to bring up my email, but I think it was $100 per listener. They are a monthly-based subscription yeah. for 14 to... No, it doesn't make any difference what the numbers are. Yeah. But here's the They're assholes. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. you just and don't want to do business with people like that. completely disconnected. Yeah. But the notion of the infomercial <laughs> is something that I am... So they were easy to... In fact, but because based on my lack of correspondence, they viewed that as means to kind of up the ante until, uh, you know, till clearly I wasn't interested. The second group that approached me, which was slightly more curious, is the National Model Railroaders Association. Oh, well, duh. And um, my, concern, my concern there was, was multifold. Firstly, um, I'm, I have some criticism associated with the organisation. I'm a member. Um, I'm a member so I could attend the thing that um, you know, I recorded, um, what, two odd months ago. But having joined the organisation, there are certain structural and technical issues with the organisation that I'd like to continue to editorialise independently. Added to that, um, recently there was a fellow who, you know, there are various technical standards of model railroading which are just about 20 years behind. For example, this thing that we're talking on, the internet, is based on the Ethernet protocol, and it would be absolutely wonderful to have the Ethernet protocol in model railroading, so you just put a train on the track and your Wi-Fi picks it up and it just starts running around based on your computer. You know, none of this nonsense. <laughs> I mean, that that is space age. Well, yeah, space certainly. Age, yeah. You know, well, because that's exactly what some of those people don't want, though. I exactly. mean, that's exactly Clearly. the point. They want hands-on. Yes. So, so anyway, I'm I very much think that the, the future could be easily put in now. Going to cause a revolution in in the industry, a split between well, the, thing, the, the old way and the new way. This is the thing that's going on currently, <laughs> which I seem to be through. You know, through a very interesting discussion kind of leading in some regard. So immediately I thought there's no way I can join the association that is, well, get sponsorship and say this show is sponsored by uh, one of the... One of well, the, unless they're giving you enough money to make it worth your while and they're the not thing, obnoxious enough to, to get in the way. The thing about it is the NMRA collects money from its members primarily. Yeah. That's their primary source of funding. So you know, they then started saying, oh, we'll give you airline tickets to various shows and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, prize support I don't have a problem with, just so long as it's not sponsorship. I'm not interested in saying this is sponsored by If they want to, yeah. you know, offer five, you know, memberships to people that win contests on the show, I don't have a problem with that. But that's not really sponsorship. In parallel to this, a rather strange occurrence occurred on the last taping of Model Rail Radio last weekend. <coughs> we had... Um, we normally record, as you know, on, on a Saturday evening, but for the UK and European listeners, we occasionally record on a Saturday morning. Uh, I think you actually stopped by on the Saturday mornings we were recording. So anyway, we had a fellow from the UK call in, we had various discussions, and then towards the end, the fellow who had written a really phenomenal expose associated with this emerging, well, somewhat backwards model rail standard that they're trying to push through technically, uh... I thought, you know, this guy's the poster child about why I don't want to be sponsored by the NMRA, because I need to have critical um, analysis. So there was a knock at the door, I had live recording, I went downstairs, opened the door, and there was this package which was a relatively large box that I brought upstairs, and this fellow had actually sent me a large die-cast train uh, that required assembly, uh, which I did actually... Saturday and Sunday and didn't actually put out the show based on assembling it. But it was a really, it was like 1950s American engineering. It was like everything that I really liked about kind of 1950s style American engineering. 
and I've now polished <laughs> the thing up so it's now like shiny chrome. I have to paint it eventually. But it just struck me that this fellow had sent, and it, I don't know how much it's worth. I mean, it's worth a couple of hundred bucks, I guess, um, and very uh, car and some track and other things. I just sent it to me on a whim that he really liked what I was doing, and it occurred to me, and I do receive parcels from listeners. I mean, that's one of the phenomena of model rail radio. Um, usually they're the same magazines over and over again. I have, like, triplicate, quadruplicate of some magazines based on fans just kind of clearing out their attic and sending me, you know, boxes and stuff. Um, but uh, it is a phenomena. It is a phenomena. The um, growth rate, as I may have noted, has slowed slightly. It's not at 20%. It's more like 16%. Well, it's going to top out somewhere, it you know. It eventually, yeah. and I'm kind of bracing yeah. myself for that. My original analysis... It is probably going to dip a little bit after that well, before it's stabilized. This is the thing with the sponsorship, is that I knew that if, if I put sponsorship out there immediately, it would immediately impact the numbers, and the reaction would probably be very poor. Yeah, right. So, why, why would you even consider it? Exactly. I mean, what's the point, really? Exactly. Well, that's the point that I made quite explicitly, uh, particularly with the NMRA guy, because he's a fellow who I've actually met. He actually came to Las Vegas, and I met him with this large group. And I would say, listen, if they let you write the ads, <laughs> and, it's, and it's less than five minutes an hour, and no, they give I, you plenty of money, then forget it. I can't do that. <laughs> And it's not, I mean, uh, you know, the phenomena, I mean, the discussion that my wife had with me following is surely there must be a number, surely there must be terms where eventually this thing is something that you're willing to budge on. But as it is currently, I'm just interested in this growth thing. Yeah, other, you know, who knows what can come out of it. Yeah. Well, the growth thing is going to come to an end. I mean, you, that, that's no question. And it's going to dip. Well, here's, After. The thing, here's the thing, Heron. I mean, obviously, obviously, you, you know, it's never going to get to millions. It's probably well. It doesn't make any difference what the number is. But Maybe it will get to millions. Here's the interesting thing. Here's the interesting thing, Heron. The the largest portion of the listening audience is not model rail hobbyists. Uh huh. They're people <laughs> that basically go through iTunes and think. They're oh, people who are just too damn bored to do anything else. Well, no, <laughs> look, I don't know. I mean, because you haven't explored podcasts, the way I explore podcasts, and believe me, it's picked up a lot of eclectic podcasts. Is oh, I'm sure it has. I will try <laughs> a wide variety of word searches. And if I will see these bizarre... I mean, this is the Robotech oh, Okay, that I, I got it. You. All right, all right. So, no, I just... I, I got it, yeah. So these yeah. people are people that are searching for, you know, as you had childhood experiences, what have you, and mysteriously come across Model Rail Radio and then start listening. And a good number of them actually... I mean, this has come up repeatedly in discussions, are actually now doing things like, you know, building layouts and... Uh, you know, going and helping uh, well, yeah. groups and all these kind of things. So the ability to use it all over... You know what you need to do is to make your name more ambiguous then. So that so that people might, you know, which would encourage people to come there even for the wrong reason, because that is your growth potential. You're right. <laughs> Screw those railroad people. Well, you know, maybe, that, maybe that's the idea with Stone Ape, but it's slightly different, or two Scrooges. Or, I mean, I think there are a wide yeah. variety of things that work under that pattern. Absolutely. I model, but I think Model Rail Radio, because of its exact terminology, immediately focuses people. And there have been people... I mean, I was looking at this because after knocking back these... Um, well, I mean, when I received the train, it basically said, screw Audible, and following up from that thinking, I don't think I could take money or anything, yeah. really, from the NMRA. So that's yeah. easy as well. 
But um, when I uh, communicated this out, there are now six, I think, active co-hosts on Model Rail Radio that all participate and do various things. There's, there are a couple of fellows that run our wiki and maintain it on a kind of weekly Okay, yeah, basis. so you've got a real community exactly. going Exactly, so this is the thing that I think, actually, I'm going to start by... Ah, what with... you need to do now is ease your way out of there, well, but leave, leave some... Well, you know what I'm saying, but you got to build the organization. Yes, this is the thing. I mean, I think you're exactly right. It's not necessarily about easing my way out of there, though, because ultimately... The things that I'm learning... Well, from that's level. up to you. I mean, if you yeah. want to, it's cool. But I'm just saying you need the organization. I'm yeah. learning a lot of interesting stuff through Model Rail Radio currently, and yeah. I think it's stuff that can be can be utilized. How big do you think the, I mean, uh, the community actually could be? Well, I, the numbers that I've given you initially are associated with the Model Railroad magazine, and that has nominally, I think, 150,000 subscribers. And are they mostly in the United States? or A good portion of them are. And that's the difference, obviously, with Model Rail Radio. And I'm now tracking more and more of the listeners via Facebook, and there's a, there's a substantial um, like Asian contingent um, oh yeah, that's right. The whole right, yeah, Hong Kong, all these areas. It's it's very strange to me. In Europe, uh... yeah, less so. Europe. It's funny because the um, what I'm finding is well, England certainly must very have. Much so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> England, New Zealand, Canada, English speaking predominantly, yeah. and now there is a wave of kind of people who understand enough that they're picking it up as well. The thing about it is that I've always tried to keep a quite conscious diversity perspective associated with what we cover. And we have a fellow who's a co-host who's very strongly oriented in a particular fashion, and he will dominate the conversation. And what I've tried to do, and this isn't Chris Abbott who you've spoken to, I don't want Chris to think this, I think Chris probably knows as he listens and who I'm talking about, but um, <laughs> the that I'm having to circumvent, because this fellow who's very specifically oriented has amazing breadth of information you just need to get that out of him so i've been thinking about changing not changing the format but at least changing the topics to get that kind of information out of him um because certainly i found with my own kind of pinging of him uh you know it's a it's a matter of just kind of translating these insights into into piecemeal uh and also maintaining a very there was a kind of negative narrative that came through the last show associated with these young people today and um, I turn that very quickly to say that there are a whole series of givens associated with today, and the way that we deal with these givens is is the way that you know we move anything forward. So rather than just lamenting the past as past, you know, th- let's think about what we have currently, and now we move into a, a kind of descriptive future. And I think this is very much kind of Bayesian narrative. I'm going to restart Bayesian this Friday, probably with a monologue if if no one else uh, participates. And I'm going to devote a, a portion of that time to talk about the experience associated with model rail radio, obviously not in a model rail-centric context, but in the context that there is a group of skilled engineers out there yeah. that is, you know, and the way in which... The, Building a community. Exactly. Yeah. And that it's taking the blueprint that I worked on for a number of years with Bio to moving it to a different area and watching the community kind of grow and flourish. And I think that's a very powerful metaphor for this this you know, mechanism. Yeah. Whether yeah. or not it can be used in kind of broader social movements or these kind of things. Well, that remains to be seen. That's what we need yeah. to play with and experiment. That's what I see going on at TalkShoe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I mean, not TalkShoe. Well, actually all of those, but, but that zeitgeist movement Certainly. thing is, is uh, you know, mostly a mess, but it's people struggling with this new medium trying to figure out how to make it work. Doing the writing in parallel is certainly, you know, 
it, the, not necessarily the notion of purpose or even product, but at least giving me a strong sense of, I guess, reinforcing what, what are clearly strengths and then recognising that there are components of these that can be refined even more. Um, and this is an interesting kind of self-reflective, uh, how do I even translate this into kind of general speak? I think if all of these things are really experimental. I mean, this is the thing that really strikes me with this phenomena, is that everything we are doing is experimental. I mean, everything... It's its funny, actually, I mean, I know you've been unwell. The last recording you put out there, I really had the sense that this was a conversation that I had heard many, many times before, which is ultimately... Which you have. Well, it's, it's true. Absolutely. It's follows just one same big old it's thing. It's your form completely. And I think, it, yeah, the ability to... I don't know, I, yeah, certainly I think of things more in terms of kind of almost periodicity that basically, you know, you cover something, you move on, you cover something, you move on, and then maybe you return and then you cover and you move on. Uh, and it's interesting, actually, I've been thinking a lot about our earlier discussions associated with your potential writing or these kind of things. Have you, um, in terms of the, uh, this phrase that, uh, delirium is the only respite for the sober, so I certainly <laughs> use my, my sick period. Uh, as a way of really decompressing and say that again. I want. I want to hear that again. That's uh, a good. I'm, I've used it before with you, but delirium is the only respite for the sober. And <laughs> I, I, I've used the period that you're describing of being, you know, sick as a dog, as a means of actually doing almost McKenna-like. Uh, I don't know, self decompression. Um, and it's it's horrible to even say this out loud, mainly because of the kind of work environments that I've experienced over, well, well more than a decade, actually. I really enjoyed being sick when I was doing all these dot-com things in the Bay Area, too. Um, but, yeah, I've always utilised this kind of delirious illness as much to my own benefit as possible. There's nothing quite like being deliriously sick. Um, and it's funny because most people would kind of, I don't know, look at this in, in a kind of horrible sense, but for me, it's just another tool of exploration. And I'm curious through your, your period of, um, of being, you know, the sickest you've been since you started taking, um, taking, uh, taking vitamin C um, how many years ago, whether you've used this experience <clears throat> for a kind of personal decompression and analysis. Have you come through oh, oh, that? Well, yeah, you're stuck with that. Yeah. You know, yeah, but 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 it's not like I was that sick. I mean, the only thing that's happened is that I stopped going to the gym because okay. I know if I go to the gym, I'll get worse. Right. So and this what is happens just a respiratory is respiratory infection, basically. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I've had a runny nose and a cough, and it's annoying as hell. And my energy has been sort of so low. I just you know, yeah. feel sort of stupid, and yeah. <laughs> you know. But other than that, I mean, I can go to work and pass for a normal human with hmm. no problem. Hmm. But still, uh, getting at being out of the gym for two weeks is uh, interesting, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it, uh, yeah. But in terms of your own thinking, in terms of your own reflection, I mean, you, you mentioned that you have a lot of audio to edit, but you haven't actually put out a lot of audio in the past few uh, weeks. Well, I put out like four today. Oh, did you? Okay, I've missed yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I spent today doing, okay. actually, instead of going to the gym, is uh, went back and started editing that stuff. And, okay. and putting it up, and I've got about four more to do. So, in terms of a progressive insight or anything like that, uh, uh, since our since we last talked, yeah. do you think there's been any 
progressive change in your thinking, or are you still uh, enjoying where you are currently? Oh no, there's always progress, uh, progress, mm-hmm. progression. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's more noticeable and faster, and sometimes it feels like not much is happening, but something's always happening. So, hmm. um, and, and one thing that's happening is um, I've I had a meeting two no, last Sunday at a guy's house uh, who invited people that he knew who were interested in education to come together and just talk. Very good. And it was a real interest. There were six people there, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a really interesting group. And and in the meantime, uh, we decided we were going to meet again, but we really weren't quite sure what we should be doing. And everyone sort of kind of timid, hmm. although not really. I mean, these people were somewhat... Anyway, it's a good group of people. And, and, but one guy in the email responses says, well, hell, let's start a school. <laughs> and immediately everybody said yes. Very good. Very good. So uh, our next meeting is um, this Sunday evening. And, you know, we have no idea. But it's a good – it's a group with, of people with diverse talents in education and incredible intelligence and energy. Hmm. So who knows what will happen. I'm excited to... Do you want to keep this group anonymous, or can I ask you questions about it? No, no, I don't mind talking about okay. it. So um, in terms of the, these six, can you describe who they are? Maybe um, One of them is a, is a father and daughter. He's in his mid-50s. She's like 22. Mm-hmm. She's an incredible singer. She, there are YouTube. I, I saw some YouTube of, of her singing, and she, she's very good. And her father is uh, some sort of in, uh, software entrepreneur type guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then another person was a high school teacher in an inner city in Santa Ana with mostly gang members okay. as her students. And another one is an actress and also teacher, and she, I don't, I didn't learn much about her. And another guy who was a physical, you know, like a not a gym, but uh, you know, shop instructor who uh, had a reputation, I guess, for teaching more than shop, okay. <laughs> you know. And uh, and then the guy who called it, called them all together. Uh, he. Uh, he He's just a guy who's real interested in this stuff and wants to make a difference. So what would the nature of the school be? Oh, we have no idea. We haven't got a clue. <laughs> That's what we're going to meet this Sunday for. And so, I mean, it's an audacious idea for a group of people to come together and meet and talk together for a couple of hours uh, for the first time. And then somebody in an email says, well, screw it, let's start a school. And everyone says, cool, I'm in. Let's, let's meet and talk about it. So that's where we are. And in terms of how you all initially got together, it was all in this people? No, I, I knew the one guy. He actually had two. There's another group that is in existence, and I have no idea. I should ask him about that. I'm surprised I didn't question this earlier. But yeah, he had a group meet on uh, Sunday, and another group. There was ideal was to have eight people at each at, at each meeting, uh-huh. and uh, so there's another group that met on Thursday. I don't know what came out of that. I have no idea. So, is this coming out of the idea that basically public education throughout the U.S. is effectively dead, and that communities need to start forming their own charter schools? Uh, 
I, I don't think anybody in this group would probably disagree with that, but nothing like that ever was spoken about. But, uh, yeah, I think everyone here realizes we're, on, we're creating a new world here and that the old systems are pointless and we need to rethink it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because certainly the phenomenon of charter schools is something that I've been tracking, and it's um, a kind of continued part of my conversation with my wife about actually having children here, um, because certainly the only option that seems to <coughs> show itself would either be homeschooling or creating, as you described, these very specific charters. Well, if you've got the money, there are there are good private schools, but they're quite expensive. Mm, oh, well, I think, well, good is... Good is well, good I mean, is ones that really do try to develop people's uh, true selves and values and things. I mean, there are some good schools, but they're, like I say, they're very expensive. Yes. I don't know, my... I... My experiences with education was very much a call on to, I guess, an insight into what prison life would be like. And I really think that... The Wasn't I went to Catholic school? Yes. <laughs> so. so your experience with what hell would be like, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, it's not unlike prison, I think. Yes, possibly, possibly, <laughs> maybe slightly hotter. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I've always found it quite... I mean, my... Yeah, I think the things that concern me are the use of education for indoctrination. And of course, that's what it is. Clearly. Uh, it's however, the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> however, there are particular indoctrination phenomena in this country which I feel are really, I really am strongly opposed to. But I agree with you, but yeah. the thing is, I, I'm more interested in the programming and in, indoctrination that I want to do. Exactly. You know, I'm not going to sit around and, and get bent out of shape because other people want to do the same thing, only from a different point of view. Yeah, but I mean, this is the concern is. I mean, this is the bizarre abstract. Is that the only concern I have with regards to U.S. schools is the potential that I would have a child that had to have these experiences, and I think the and that in and of itself is so unbelievably abstract to having even said it out loud. Well, yeah, it's really, abstract. yeah, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, but who would subject their child to the American education system? <laughs> Dump them off and see in a couple hours. <laughs> well, see you in, in more than a couple. I guess the my experience with education had, in parallel to it, very strong, largely self-generated uh, points of opposition that I could continue to educate myself with, um, computing primarily, um, but also a variety of other things associated with that. Uh, and also, I mean, I had a lot of extracurricular activities that weren't um, enforced as they are here, but were actually done by choice. Um, I do think, and this came through the Model Rail Radio discussion, that the creative mind of the child is really an unstoppable phenomenon. It's something that we've talked about. Oh, we've had a... We mean, yeah, it's, it's completely stoppable. Look at what the American system has done. Well, you see... But, but it, yeah. We, yeah, that's the point, is that if we treat those children properly, they will expand their creativity. Right. So I guess what you're doing here is not explicitly answering my question, but at least saying that this collection of people 
is what was your specific question well the specific question was was this about actually creating a charter school in Star Trek oh no, oh, no like I say well I told you what it's yeah. about we don't know what it's about that's exactly my point but yeah. my point is that the undercurrent to this seems to indicate that the you know the existing circumstances are ones that could be changed or motivated through um, the creation of, of something here and then the other thing that interests me is the particular age group of children that you would want to be communicate or in oh, this. none of this has been even i mean the whole thing i want to i want to talk about youngsters but some of the people are are really into uh you know what i would call adult rehabilitation yes. you know and but that's their calling that they want to they think they can make a difference there yeah you know and more power to them so i i think uh it really hinges on who we are who who these eight people are and and what you know, and we don't know. We only met each other for the first time. The only thing that we've got going is that I'm, you know, really impressed by them, and apparently everybody is pretty much pretty impressed by the other people. So this fellow that organized it that has another group going in parallel yeah. currently. What was? Do do you get a sense of the overlap from a group that you met with, or is is this an additional seven people that he's found? No, no. This is another group with the same. Uh, meeting for the same reason as our group met for. I mean, he had a printed out sheet of why we were meeting and what he wanted to achieve. None of that happened, but <laughs> you know. But it was a good. It was a good start, you know. Very good. So, so this is fascinating. Okay. Oh, it is. Yeah. It'll be like I say. It may go nowhere. It may just. It will be, we'll meet this Sunday and realize what a dumb idea it was to start a school. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or or we'll be really energized and confused and wonder what's next and decide to meet next Sunday. Mm. So there's been a strange thesis antithesis narrative going through our discussions associated with the need for physical proximity versus the matrix. Squish versus mm. the matrix. And I yeah. think this is quite striking because you had, I guess, through what you described in the 80s and early 90s, a series of these squish-like meeting groups that you got a great amount of energy from, at least at the time. Uh, and you seem to be kind of reawakening a, into oh, that. Oh, it's always well. nice when that happens. It's, it's, it's rare in my experience. Yeah. So uh, when it happens, try to take advantage of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a, I mean, this is the thing that strikes me with the model rail radio parcels is it's actually a physical expression of something that I do purely in the ether. And I don't have, I don't have yeah. the same physicality, which is really in large part still motivating the discussion that we had probably at the start of this year associated with the need for, um, or we'll call it proximity change, a geographical change. Let's call it that. Yeah. Um, which is none of this would have happened if it wasn't for the internet, though, mm. because the guy Brad who called these meetings uh, is a guy I met uh, at a meetup mm. at, at a Buddhism <laughs> meetup. Okay. All right. So if it if it wasn't for uh, meetup dot com, nothing would have happened. So all of these people. None of these people have children currently of a kind of school age, or do they? Uh, I don't know. No, I no. I think uh, the high school teacher does. Okay. In fact, yeah, she had to leave because she had to go home. She's okay. a single mother. Ah, okay. So yes, I guess the problems of of this current phenomenon in the U.S. associated with, uh, as as you say, the good schools being really expensive. I I don't hold that line at all. I think. Um, 
there's a phenomenon in this country which means that even the expensive schools need not be good. It was funny driving around. Well, you, well no, you have to find the school. You just can't, just because it's expensive doesn't make it good. True, true. <laughs> you know, uh, you have yeah, to actually even, get even to meet the teachers and, and talk to them and see who the hell they are and what they're doing. Yeah. I guess this, this goes back to the idea of uh, passing on uh, some kind of, I don't know, cognitive proximity in field of chaos. I don't trust people that I meet, particularly in this country, to have had the right kind of experiences in terms of notions of education. I think having spoken to... What are the right kinds? Well, having... My wife, for example, went through the California education system, and a large portion of that... I'm... I, I'm not necessarily a classicist, but when I the, my experience is associated. No, with, that's listen, yeah. listen. I don't think we we have a problem. You just don't try to generalize that for everybody. For for some people who are inclined like you and I are yeah. towards rigor, yeah. uh, that has to be fully available. So, but that doesn't mean there aren't, in addition to that, other modes, other approaches that are just as valid. Well, just as valid is a very. I mean, that's, I think this is the idea. Yeah, tricky. Tricky is the just word. As, just as valid, <laughs> I don't. You see, if you don't, if you don't understand statistics, for example, this is the thing I found living here in two thousand. If you don't understand statistics and machine error, then you really don't understand what occurred politically in two thousand. Okay. And. If I and I was interacting with Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple Computers at the time, and he didn't understand statistics and machine error. So my feeling is that the it, it's not just about. So you are asserting that uh, if you know something about that, that in fact you know the explanation for what no, happened. You know, well, what you understand is the ridiculousness of the circumstances that happened, because basically you're outside. The, the delta that they were describing associated with the election was, you know... Machine oh, you still think the facts are meaningful, huh? No, 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 no. no. I'm acknowledging that the facts are actually meaningless and mathematically yeah. meaningless. I mean, well, I to, think there's a... To emotional human beings, none of this makes one bit of difference. Yes. So this is my point, I guess, that irrespective of one's emotional perspective, if you've studied, which we did in, I guess, ninth grade in Australia, machine error, and if you embrace that idea as a concept, that you then ultimately creates things that fly and drive and do a wide variety of other things. It's not any magic or voodoo or any of this kind of uh, science that creationists might be concerned about, for example. Then um, you just have a different view of the world, I think. And the thing that strikes me also is that implicitly, even with my wife's experiences in California schools, and I've taught her calculus, uh, early on in our relationship, she wants to get into... uh, In fact, it was when we got back here I taught her calculus. Uh, And I've gone through explaining... I mean, she left school without even basic fractions. And that real you know, math is relatively easy if you have a good teacher. <laughs> yes. Well, it's yeah, it's it's relatively easy if you're given it in some regard, or if you can derive it, or if you have the basis of deriving. And if you want, well, if you want to learn too, yeah, that helps. You actually have to want to learn it, and you need and a good teacher a bad, is very yeah, helpful. A bad teacher can can kill these things without absolutely, but, but absolutely. My, I guess my concern is that 
I'm now in the field that I'm in, I do meet people who are from this country that have had this kind of level of, of uh, I guess, rigour in the stuff that they encounter, but they still are perfectly capable of completely counterintuitive wackiness. Well, people are mostly unconscious language monkeys. I think you've heard me say that before. Yeah, but Just I don't so... truly believe it. And I... Well, but you're but then you're coming here telling me about how you observe these behaviors. Well, in part, <laughs> but I don't think I think that the it's not just language. It's all there's also oh no, it's no, it's no, it's much deeper. All these kind of things, exactly. So yeah, I, no, I language is just a part. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But I Thank guess you. the lies, let's call them that, because that's what they clearly are, that folks are fed in this country. We're sold a story, and most people buy it. I guess that's a way of putting it. Um, I don't. And they'll die I to support that story. It's not even a story that's sold. It's a story that is is hovering constantly. It's it's. It's it's yes yes it's the culture it's yeah. the television it's your neighbors it's yeah. you yeah. it's everything it's your language so yes well it's yeah all of the above so I guess my concern with schools here is that the percentage of indoctrination the amount of time of indoctrination the seeds of disbelief that need to be sown all the additional energy that one would need to spend raising a child in this kind of environment can quite easily be negated by actually taking the child out of the environment. So the two options that have been put to me have been, well, three options, really. Firstly, leaving the country. Secondly, embracing the um, homeschooling methodology, which would be a substantial amount of work for me Damn right. Well. Or, or, well, or you can get organized with some other people. I mean, the there probably are the homeschools around. Point. This is the third point. Is yeah. basically doing what you're describing, which is creating this charter, well, not even charter school, but this, this informal group that eventually, because now all schools are fundamentally informal in the U.S. context, become formalized in this charter thing. Yeah. Yeah, everybody needs, yeah, even putting a name on it is really sort of pointless. This is, this is something new. Hmm. You know, it's not really a school. Yeah. It's not really, you know, it's just some people coming together for the purposes of facilitating learning. And in fact, that's a big part of it. The teaching as one of the things I, I got from almost everybody there is they're much more interested in learning than they are in teaching. Yes, yes. And I think the thing that interested me in my experience as teaching my wife calculus was to give her the tools that she needed to actually do what you're describing. Yeah, she needs to drag it out of you. Well, or I need to drag it out of her. Or Yeah, there's a combined metaphor there, yeah. which is, in fact describes the process. Um, it's interesting because the co-worker that I'm spending, uh, that I referenced previously, is changing his son's school currently to, uh, it begins with an M. I see words Montessori. Like Montessori, and I can't say them. Montessori. To a Montessori school, and we've been yeah. talking about that as a, as an educational. Oh, and he's doing it. He's going to put his kid yes, there. Yes. Cool. Um, That's great. And I think the thing that's yeah, it's funny because having described the notion of school as being like a jail, I also think that that there's a there's a critical importance in existing a society that requires you to really understand the. I guess the proximity one has to prison in any given circumstance. This quite amusingly occurred to my wife recently when she was pulled over by the police, and it was only mm -hmm. by the fact that I had, uh, through my own neuroses, 
duplicated and put all the insurance details in a wide variety of places around the car that she was <laughs> able to find that in, in relative proximity. And previously she had commented that this was absolutely ludicrous and that it was... And then she came home, gave me a big hug and told me about this story and then said, you're exactly right in the circumstances where you are stressed and under pressure and consulted and, you know, in the presence of police, <clears> this is exactly the time that you want to make sure everything is laid out. Uh, laid out <laughs> you got the, that. So, yeah, I think there's, um, yeah, I guess this is the thing with regards to, uh, with regards to education. The, the people I've known who have uh, homeschooled have either been independently wealthy or have had very particular uh, uh, social kind of almost quasi-religious persuasion. Yeah, yeah, and I've seen is, a lot of that. Yeah. yeah, that is my. I think that's. I think that is beginning to broaden, though. I think. I think <laughs> there are cases. Yes. More and more, probably. I think more and more people are beginning to, you know, take a look. Yeah. You know, especially and again, it's 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 happening more among the people who've got the money to do it. Yes. I mean there. I mean, I think that's another thing that, thing that makes me think there's going to be a market in this at some point to, to oh, educate your child. Already. I think you know, market already. I mean, I well, think there is, but I mean, I think we'll be able to actually deliver. Yes. You know, uh, and I think that could be a pretty good market again to rich people. Yes. Who want who want to see their kids succeed in an uncertain future, and may, might think that it's important for them to learn how to think. Yeah, no, I can see the market immediately. Yeah, I think there's no I, question about that. The real issue uh, can you deliver? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, not not just that, but uh, my assumption is that this is because I've had no in- instinct associated with. Well, my assumption would be that this is something that is very, and I know this actually because I've I've read and um, uh, heard accounts of a variety of charter schools that have started up with the best intentions and then become very much kind of, you know, they, they hired a, a CEO and they do call them CEOs and then... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Then no. It goes downhill within, you know, a year. Well, they're still trying to be schools. Like, yes. they're just trying to be special schools. Like I say, I, we're not even looking... Again, we're talking about a learning community, mm. not a school. I mean, he said, let's start a school, but really the words that they, everyone talked about more are learning communities. Yes. And that's a whole whole different thing, you know? It, um, well, I don't know what it's going to be. This is why I'm looking forward that to the meeting. That's absolutely fascinating, Aaron, and amazingly uh, kind of re-energizing from your particular perspective. So... In terms of the skills generated by working in a, what you describe as, I guess, an inner city school with, mm. uh, with gang members and these kind of things, what did that fellow bring to the, uh, bring to the meeting? Uh, it was a lady. That was oh, the sorry. one with the teenage daughter. Okay. And what she brought is incredible intelligence and energy and enthusiasm. Because she needs those skills, obviously, to deal on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, yeah. She she speaks she out, man. She tells the truth. There's no bullshit with her. She can't bullshit those gang members, you know, seventh-grade gang members. Yes. I went to uh, junior high in L.A., and they were bust in, and, you know, a fellow produced a revolver to show, you know, mm-hmm. another fellow and all these kind of things. So I yeah. actually experienced... Uh, yeah, L.A. Uh, junior high schools, which I guess, that's just yeah. I, mean, I I can't 
I can't imagine working in an environment like that. This is the funny thing, you know. I've never (laughs) experienced the kind of camaraderie that I experienced in that kind of environment. It was very curious to me, firstly, that uh, these were as much children who were looking to understand their world and acutely more than the middle-class folk I'd experienced back in Australia. I think this whole notion of... uh, Poverty, depravity, and gangs, and these kind of things is, in fact, somewhere a misunderstanding. Oh no, that's what, well, that's there. exactly what she's saying. Yeah. She's actually dealing honestly with these kids, and so, she has their respect. Yeah, you know, and that only comes because she can see who they are. Yeah, and that's what she's saying is that you know that 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 dichotomy. You know that that she knows they're there, and she can reach some, and she and others just aren't going to play. You know, yeah. and and she's constantly trying to figure out how to how to make contact. Hmm. But but she's just she's just an amazing soul. Like I say, her uh, when you, when she looked you right in the eye when she spoke, and and she just had a lot of enthusiasm and intelligence and everything. She was great. I'd, I'd be real happy to work with her. And the shop teacher, in terms of... I, I wrote these people down as you described Okay, He's the least... Uh, uh, he spoke hardly at all. Uh-huh. And what few things he said uh, were not unreasonable. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he was... Uh, you know, I wasn't impressed one way or another, but the fact that uh, Brad invited him there with the other people he invited, I got to think... You know, he's quiet. Maybe I should, you know, listen more to him. Hmm. Yeah, the shop teacher is an interesting archetype, really, in my own experiences. So it's difficult to kind of divorce myself from those experiences. Yeah, uh, well. But, uh, yeah, this guy is unique, obviously. Really. He's not your shop teacher. Or the shop teachers <laughs> that I've experienced previously. Yeah, but yeah. then you mentioned that he was someone who obviously did more than teach shop in terms of the Well, when he was introduced, I don't really remember. Like I say, he's a really unassuming kind of guy. Okay. Uh, and uh, he really sort of just blended in. <laughs> you know, to me, in my brain. Now, again, maybe other people had entirely different perceptions of him. Uh. You know, it's just uh, other all the others there were more um, sort of extreme. Mm. I mean, uh, the engine, the software entrepreneur is a big, good looking guy in his 50s, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, anyway, they, they all material, is this what you're saying? What quarterback material? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's, it's just uh it was just an interesting group of people. Like I say, so uh, the fact that that one guy said almost nothing the whole night. Um, I you guess think he I, was just absorbing what was going on. I have no idea. Yeah. I, I, I don't need to know. It's none of my business. Uh, you know, he was invited there by Brad, and he invited Brad invited all those other people there, and he sure had good judgment about them. <laughs> So do you think these these two groups will eventually hybridize into a single group? Is that I have no idea. I don't even know if the second group decided to meet again or whether they had a, had to call the police to break it up. <laughs> you know, I don't know. In fact, I, I'm probably when I get through with you, I'm going to call Brad and find out what the <laughs> hell is going on with the other group anyway. Hmm. Well, they're meeting tomorrow, you say? Uh, no. Uh, they met last Thursday. Let me try because it's been two weeks. Oh, okay. uh, you know, I mean, this coming Sunday will be two weeks. So, okay. 
So it wasn't last Sunday. So it was the Thursday. It was the Sunday before last Sunday okay. that we met, and uh, and it was the Thursday before tomorrow. So tomorrow, if they decide to meet meet a week from then, then they'll be meeting tomorrow. We decided to have a meeting in two weeks. Okay. So I, but I'm going to call Brad. I mean, I, I can't believe that I haven't called him already because. Mm. Um, it seems funny, even having this discussion, you seem to be re kind of energized towards the direction that this is almost kind of reliving the experience in some subtle way in terms of just your general description. Well, I am excited about it. It's, it's not often that I, uh, again, uh, the meetings, I meet with a lot of really interesting people in the matrix, you know, and I, I get excited about that when I meet somebody new mm. and some of them stick and some of them don't. And, uh, but that's still all good, but it, uh, this has got, you know, in meetings in Squish can be, you know, it was this different space, different rules, everything. You know, it's just, I like Squish. It's not the. It's not that I prefer the Matrix. I like them both when they work. Hmm. And and this is awesome to you know. We actually had uh, you know had some a salad and <laughs> some fruit drinks and sat around and talked. That's you know, nice. it was great. Very good. Very good. Yeah, my wife is going to your part of the world tomorrow. Um, and if work hadn't been as as it has been, I was considering heading down to your part of the world because I would have absolutely nothing to do. Um, which <laughs> Why is she... Where is she going? She's going to um, some kind of cake decorating seminar, which is what she does in the evening. She teaches cake decorating. Uh-huh. Uh, and they're having a big thing in Riverside. It must be at the Disneyland Hotel. No, it's oh. not. It's not. <laughs> oh, Otherwise, damn. no. No, it's not at all. Um, it's not Riverside. Riverside's where her grandmother died. Where is it? But it's around your part of the world. And I, I considered... Yeah. Uh, I put a post out and then immediately realized that it was impossible for me to go to Southern California with her this time. But yeah. I was thinking in terms of the folk that I know at uh, UCLA that do the PTSD stuff, I uh, oh, yeah. have arranged something there. But, and because of this work situation, I just haven't had time to really think along that line. Um, the yeah, I'm, you know, somebody reminded me of that today oh, okay. about... About My following up to failing. Yeah. To, you know, yeah. Well, no, no, it, no. It, well, I'd forgotten about it actually yeah. until he brought it up, I and then I went, "Yeah, through, damn, yeah. right, that's the idea." Yeah, I need to go through my. Uh, the problem is that I know these people. I'm. I don't know the the quality of my mind through these periods of work. It's not particularly good for other things, um, and um, finding these people. Then again, I see a few of the of their names but i need to see their face and their name which i can only do through a facebook search yeah so i need to sit in front of my facebook account yeah listen take it. time uh, i've got plenty on my plate I hear that. I hear <laughs> so it'll, it'll be okay yeah meeting up with a wide variety of people kind of went across my mind for all of uh, all of an evening actually yeah uh, and then yeah work just there's no way so what's going on with work that's so, I mean, well, is this I something that... I kind of that... anticipated that this was going to happen. I do a lot of external stuff. I teach classes and I do a lot of IP and things like that with them. Um, but I anticipated that basically there's this tall poppy phenomenon where once you start showing yourself kind of excelling in certain areas, you'll just get more and more and more and more work. And I kind of felt that going through uh, towards the end of last year. And I talked to a couple of the teams that I worked with and just said, you probably won't be able to utilize me like you've been utilizing me up in the following year. Um, 
And now it's all really become real. Of course they can. It's just going to cost them a lot well, more. Well, no, no, no. They actually can't because there just aren't enough hours in the day, which is the problem uh, I've been facing recently. In fact, the, the reason I'm talking to you currently is because my wife uh, had to get to the class and we had to exchange the car and do a wide variety of other things. So that was one reason that I could get home early this evening. Um, but How yeah. many hours are you working a week? Uh, not as much as when I lived in the Bay Area. I don't like to give these kind of calculations because it makes me feel very much like, um, you know. Yeah, okay, all right, so, I got it. Anyway, yeah, well, that, you've yeah. already answered the question. So, I don't... Yeah, the, the circumstances currently is just, you know, the, anyway, I think... Well, how much longer do you intend to do this? That's a very good question, and that's something else that is being run in parallel. I do understand that there are people that I work with that may actually listen to this, so... Let's just leave that. Your time, yeah, maybe short. <laughs> so, well, actually, the difficulty is that, um, yeah. Anyway, I, I can I can give a posthumous narrative to this potentially in the future. <laughs> but at the time, as it is currently, let's just say that I'm working a lot of hours, and yeah, I, it's not so much freewheeling, but a good, yeah. I mean, it, it, it writes itself. There's not a lot I can say about it, aside from the fact yeah. that I'm thoroughly enjoying the uh, the hours of writing that I'm doing, and I'm finding. Um, that I, as I have with all my open source projects, I'm parceling my time very well. So I know in advance, for example, that I'm going to be corresponding with the, you know, one fellow or another, and I just save, you know, what I'm going to say. So when I'm in front of the keyboard, it's the most productive time. I know exactly what I'm going to write, basically. Um, mm. And also with my own writing, because it gives me a chance to really explore plot. Uh, and it's funny thinking of this thing in terms of non-fiction writing, in terms of plot. But the way in which you present the information, really, the reader doesn't care. I mean, on some no, level, it's a still a story. Exactly. <laughs> and if it isn't engaging, if it isn't, you know, then it's yeah. not. It's nothing. So yeah, I'm certainly using the time currently. But um, in parallel to this, the narrative that I have given previously, and I'm kind of codifying what I'm saying associated with geographical change, is also you know something clearly that you know the current circumstances can't go on forever, uh, and yeah. Let's just say there'll be, you know, there'll be posthumous narrative associated with this. In the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You'll be on to whatever's next. Certainly, yeah. certainly. But um, yeah, as it is currently, uh, my method of dealing with it more than anything is just as I described initially, behaving like a rag doll and letting myself be carried. And um, for example, one of the teams which I said I couldn't meet with, I was able to get a uh, half an hour meeting in today and sketch out a wide variety of things. I think the main thing that I'm finding is. I have a skill set, and my skill set is far broader than what currently can be utilized in, uh, you know, corporate America. And the options that are available <laughs> to me currently are very curious, but I think time is my ally in this circumstance. Yeah, I think probably this is going to evolve over the next decade. Exactly. Well, I don't yeah. even think in the next decade. I mean, when I went to the Bay Area, I've been to the Bay Area twice in the past two years, and things are certainly picking up in that part of the world. Well, actually, like I say, well, I mean, actually, you're going to be involved with this for the rest of your life. Of course. You know, there's no end to this. Certainly. Oh, no, the after-hours stuff, exactly. I mean, what interests me is the potential of it being something that sustains me both both in hours and after hours, so to speak. And I think there's certainly potential for that in the future. It could happen very rapidly. It could happen very slowly. But I mean, the important thing is to be doing it exactly. right now. Exactly. That's what counts. You know, exactly. if you can make money at it, cool. If you can't... Just as then you just deal with it. Well, you know? I, I think of it like gasoline, quite literally, that irrespective of whether the match is lit now or in 20 years' time, the, the, 
all the stuff that I've done over the past decade has been very productive. I mean, even these yes. recordings. Harry, well, it always will been, be. Yeah. They're there. Exactly. And if anybody stumbles onto them yeah. and gets something out of it, good. But no, it's a strengthening narrative as well. And some of the things that I've experienced, which I can't even think about how I'm going to editorialize in the recent past, these things are all based on the fact of stuff that I've been doing for a long period of time. I mean, this is the beauty, actually, of of the multimedia notion that it's not just with regards to podcasts, it's with regards to software, it's with regards to, you know, the <laughs> academic community, these kind of publishing, this yeah. kind of thing. There's a legacy that I'm basically creating as I'm going through this process, which is all extremely useful. There is no wasted time out of this. Yes. And I think it may be, something... it may be two or three people in the universe will be, you know, or maybe millions of people, Yeah. but it, that doesn't make any difference. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's just there. It's fair for anybody who wants to avail themselves to it. If they get something out of it, great. I know that I have profoundly influenced a few people, you know, maybe 10 in my lifetime. You know, I don't know. But uh, that's enough. Levels of influence, and this is another interesting thing. Yeah, these are just the ones I know about. I mean, certainly, and I've discussed this with you previously in terms of your referencing of Kurzweil and the singularity and all this kind of stuff, in my own kind of frustration associated with that on some level, that, yeah. um, you know, my constant, um, you know, public um, persona or whatever, I try to give out a very strong uh, critique, perhaps, of these kind of ideas, and certainly... as Well, anything that's to... too cool, you're against, on principle. <laughs> no. Yes, man, Ted, you know... Oh look! I went Fuck. to see. I went to see. Um, <laughs> I went to see. What was it called? Now you see, this is this is a quality of my working mind. I went to see Sucker Punch with my wife uh, uh -huh. this weekend. Yeah. And I went into that, and there were elements of that. And uh, the thing that I've been now married this evening. This is my ninth wedding anniversary this evening. Ah. Uh, and the thing that I've learned from that is exactly what you're saying. My wife says everyone likes it, so you must hate it. <laughs> of my, of my, yeah, and this is just a, the perception that people have. That's pretty much the way I am. I mean, I, I for years, if anything was on the bestseller list, that was enough reason for me not to read it. Yeah, I'm different though. I will, I will typically go through the bestseller shelf and read the first few sections, and if something disgusts me, I'll put it down. But I've bought bestsellers based on that criticism. If I yeah. can go and open it up and it still engages me, I will pay my money for the yeah. bestseller. No, you're probably smarter than I am. <laughs> I'm just well, pointing out my attitude for a long time. The point I find is that through doing that, it means that when people reference the bestsellers, I can at least give a, a strong criticism. At least criticism. you know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. strong criticism yeah. early on. Um, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a strange life. It's a strange life, Aaron. But no, well, you notice that huh? the thing—the yeah. thing that I've found, and I've thought about this more particularly from our discussions associated with married life—is that you do—you have to soften some edges. Somewhere you have to what? Wait, you, have you have to, to what? soften some of the edges somewhere. <laughs> no, you don't. No, no, you don't. Well, I mean, you can. It's a choice. That's all. Yeah, I don't know. If you want, if you want cohabitation to work. You oh, if you, oh, oh, if you want to be married. Yeah. Well, it depends on what you mean by married. Again, I mean, see, to me. I, li I like the idea of marriage. It's just getting marriage and sex mixed together that makes me nervous. Yeah, but you also so, have a relatively unique version of marriage. No, I know, but that's, but that's what it is to me. Marriage, to me, uh, really is about this commitment to somebody's 
goals and wishes and desires and to live with them because uh, you love them and respect them and want to live with them. Yeah. Not because you want to, you know, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, uh, hey, I know that that's unusual. I don't see the... F- you see, this is strange because you spend a good portion of your life working against forced... forced duality, but you seem to be making a kind of forced duality in that description of marriage. But we've decided... No, no, well, it's just simply saying that uh, that for me, again, I'm not suggesting this is for everybody, but that if I am sexually attracted or involved with a woman, basically pretty much everything above that is not important. Yeah. You know, and it's only when... And that part always goes. That's the beauty of it, is that eventually that energy goes off sex. And then what you're left with is a human being that you want to spend the rest of your life with. Yeah. And there's no sex involved in it. Yeah. That's that's the marriage I'm interested in. But see, then that becomes a life of celibacy, and I'm certainly not interested in a life of celibacy. But I think there are lots of happily married, more or less celibate couples. Yeah. So this kind of filters into one of the other things that I'd, I'd pen down, this notion of... Um, I mean, we still have stuff on your list we haven't touched yet. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good, man. You're just a, <laughs> a fountain of stuff to talk the about. Topics. Well, we've, you know, we've had a few weeks <laughs> off. You know, I've been limbering up. You've been All right. I mean, we've, we've, you know, we've come to this point. And this is this notion of um, a bleak duality, which I'm really seeing currently in the whole discussion associated with Libya. And this a is, bleak duality. That's yes. a great phrase. I love this that. This notion that really the, the choices in Libya between Gaddafi <laughs> or his ex-generals. Yeah. And yeah. also this strange thing. I mean, I have been following uh, guerrilla conflicts pretty well through my adult life. And to a very... When I was in Malaysia, I may not have told you the story. I put it out on YouTube briefly and then pulled it off. But when I was in Malaysia, they uh, covered the Chechen conflict from the perspective of the Chechen rebels, because mm-hmm. the Chechen rebels were Muslims. Yeah. And the Malaysian media was very sympathetic to the Chechen rebels, which I found really fascinating, because for the first time in my life, something which <laughs> I had always implicitly felt yeah. was actually being represented very in, in English, not in Bahasa as well. And from that point, I have followed a wide variety of these Mujahideen groups back to reading about um, Algeria. And it's, I've watched you know, countless of their documentaries, Afghanistan, all in, all in Arabic with subtitles and this kind of stuff. And I have a really keen sense of what the document documentation associated with these kind of conflicts looks like. Now, the stuff that's appearing on YouTube currently, I think, is a different form. I think YouTube has a very strange line to roll. In fact, um, one, of these, <laughs> one of these kind of psychonaut folks that I befriended in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, posted an entire page of violent animal deaths that are on YouTube. And which clearly breaks their terms of service, and also then uh, deaths of children and a variety of other things. But I think YouTube has a very curious line currently. Anyway, looking at the supposedly rebel footage in Libya, 
I have never seen any, well, guerrilla conflict documented in video form that looks like what is appearing on YouTube. I'm seeing bunches of well-fed guys turning up with guns, rolling around in the sand. You hear bullet shots off in the distance. Then they get back in trucks and drive off. This looks <laughs> nothing like anything I've ever seen. And well, that's because, uh, they're, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, who knows? Listen, see, I, I don't even care what's yeah. going on in Libya. Yeah. You know, whatever whatever people are being sold in the mass media, you can assume is bullshit. Clearly. Uh, and whatever's really happening is what's really happening. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't really need to know about it. I don't either. I guess, I guess as, as people watch comedy shows or sitcoms, let's say, this is, this is for me the equivalent of a sitcom in terms yeah. of the, the <laughs> yeah. education of quality. The thing yeah. that strikes yeah. me is that um, <laughs> if people don't have the background of experience in terms of watching these very detailed script, uh, almost choreographed Mujahideen, heavily cut, uh, but also very much specifically associated with relatively violent and quite curious conflicts, the stuff in Chechnya and the Second Chechen War in particular... They fired their Kalashnikovs at 45 degrees to fire over hills. I've never seen that in conflict before. <laughs> and all this kind of really... Curious, they must have had a lot of bullets. They did. No, their whole purpose was basically to triangulate and kind of pepper a convoy at a great distance and just create complete... Confusion. And did that work? It did. Yeah, no, it worked perfectly. And there are all That's these curious awesome. things. No, the Mujahideen style of fighting from Algeria, even prior to Algeria... <laughs> goes against this is the whole notion of irregular forces and the fa the way in which they, that's so, really irregular that is awesome that's a great tactic so, from the one mountain over yeah no exactly <laughs> and then they they see the bullets firing down and they had worked out the trajectories perfectly yeah yeah sure you could so, do that so anyway there are all these kind of crazy things i see none of now none of do you see the thing is that this kind of education and it is fundamentally education on, in terms of like a visual description, but also like these kind of things. All the this technique has been pushed out through these video forms throughout the you know the the Middle East, the Arabic speaking world. In fact, and I think every kid who grows up in these environments that has any slightly subversive or even you know culturally. Uh, uh, you know, interested, we'll, we'll be able to access this footage as easily as I have on the internet. And the thing that strikes me with regards to the footage is almost that these are kind of cameo roles where they've just gotten some... Mug shots. Some <laughs> actors out that have never yeah. seen any of these videos, don't even know how to behave. In, I mean, I, it's, it strikes me as really strange just by... Well, the very thing. idea of them behaving yeah. instead of being uh, getting yeah. shot at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a big so, difference. I mean, the thing that strikes me is that people are actually dying in this conflict. Like, it is actually, perhaps, a real conflict. Who knows? The stuff that we are getting fed associated with it is very, very curious. Another yeah. thing that happened this week is we had a... I think it was it was at least six city blocks by six city blocks power outage uh, when I was in the office. Yeah, and I actually went out and walked as far as I could to see all, all these all these office parks. People were just streaming out. There was nothing they could do, yeah. and I thought this is an insight to how it all starts. You know, this is <laughs> or this how is it your, all stops. Well, no, no, this is, no. This <laughs> yeah. is this oh, is the yeah. this is the renaissance. You know, this is an interesting point where printed paper actually has a purpose, Eric. 
Ja. Yeah. Yeah, not really. <laughs> you're gonna have to get well, we can't afford to have the power room. go. That's the, that's well, this a, is the oh, interesting oh. thing you see. So if the yeah. power does go, the, the printer we're fucked. Awesome. If the power goes, we are fucked. We were we. I was funny. I went to with this coworker. We couldn't buy food. We couldn't do anything. There was nothing yeah. that could function without power. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the other thing was because it was around lunchtime. Well, you could probably go to a massage parlor. I don't know if they'd <laughs> even let you in. Who well, for cash. security cameras, without security <laughs> cameras, would they let you in? Yeah, who knows? You're right. So, I don't know. Yeah, I know. The thing that struck me was that um, looting would ensue very rapidly if you couldn't purchase goods because of lack of power and the stuff. And you were starving, yeah. Yeah, no, it's not even if you were starving, the sheer frustration of not being able to. You wouldn't need because you could assume that you would get to starving. Well, some pe- yeah, that's the thing is it is that once it sets in yeah. that we got a really serious problem here. People, uh, it's going to get really ugly. Yeah, it certainly could get very ugly. That's why if, if that scenario looks like it's coming, you, I don't think you want to be around here. Yeah, and that's I think part of the thing. That's what part of what worries me is I'm a little complacent on that because I'm quite clear that. There are some scenarios that are that would probably see me getting wiped out relatively quickly. Well, Katrina, <laughs> Katrina is the is the best example of this, and the response both from the regular and irregular forces in Katrina seem to indicate that uh, yeah, those humans just don't know how to behave. No, uh, they don't. <laughs> and, it's a problem. Yeah, the, the the less that they know how to behave, the more armed they tend to be. So. It, you want to, you just don't want to be around. That's all. Yeah. You want to be somewhere else. I mean, the alternative is to be he- more heavily armed than them, yeah. and and more organized and stronger and everything. And that's certainly a, a, a path that some people are choosing. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'm not there yet. I, well, I'm not really. Pre- I really don't care. I figure I'm probably just going to get. If it comes and I'm not prepared for it, then I'm de- I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can live with that. Yeah. I, I have hope in my wits, but um, yeah, the things like target shooting and things like that are skills that I uh, I don't have implicitly, and I, I may have to pick up on the on the on the field, so to speak, as, as these things uh, as these things degrade. I know a guy who's a carpenter. Yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, man, in any kind of world, I can, I mean, the worst possible, anything you can imagine, a guy who who can really knows his way around building crap out of wood. Uh, is very useful. I'm into that. Yeah, no, it's one of the reasons that I have kind of read and done basic boat building is for similar reasons yeah. that these yeah. are skills that I think would be relatively useful. Or medical skills, that's another thing. People, you know, like nurses and, stuff. and Yeah, <laughs> these kind of things. The first aid, fast treatment of wounds, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it is very interesting because it made me realize very quickly... And my immediate reaction was to walk, not to get into a motorized vehicle as well. My coworker pointed out that gasoline still worked. And I said, yeah, but I, I think, you know, my immediate reaction would be that stuff would be in very short supply and would be utilized really, as you say, to flee at great speed and not just to casually kind of drive around. Yeah, no, no, nobody's going to be cruising anymore. <laughs> You're not going to be wanting to picking up chicks on the corner. Yeah, no, that ain't going to be happening for so, a while. So, yeah, it was one of those funny circumstances where I realized how... There are some really scary possible scenarios. Certainly. Well, Japan a number of them currently. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's another thing that I wanted to talk about, actually, is the the video of that tsunami is just 
stunning. You know, I mean, I've watched that those you know those things on uh, Google videos and YouTube uh, many times, and the, the the power and the and the frailty of our human lives, man, and uh, just is stunning to me. You know. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I've cried about it. You know, how people can live their whole lives, their, you know, their community, their friends and everybody. And it's, if, if they're lucky enough to survive, the whole thing is just gone, yeah. just washed away in an hour. And there they are, you know, 80 years old, all their friends are dead. Their community is gone. Everything is gone. That's just... I don't know. Well, yeah. As my surviving grandmother points out candidly, all her friends are dead. And yeah, I think basically yeah. when you reach that kind of age, you come to a point where all your friends die anyway. The notion of um, permanency associated with your location is obviously one that I don't have. Um, more, Moreover, I think... No, but Japan is a really different place, and especially these fishing villages and things like that have been wiped out. They're really traditional cultures that is tied to those places. There was an interview with one guy whose house was three hundred years old. Yeah, you know, for generations his family had had lived in that house. Yeah, and it's in and it's gone. Just boom, man! Not a not a straw left. Yeah. Anyway, it's just, it's just, uh, it's just really affected me seeing yeah. that, looking at it, and thinking about how I'd react if, if that was me. I think I'd handle it probably pretty good. But I just—that's the thing—is that I know that most people really are language monkeys, and and that language monkeys who don't think well are really going to be devastated by this shit. You know, because they can't get any perspective on it and know that it's just their story. And so here's what there is to deal with. Let's get on with it. You know, Um, they're stuck in their story, most of them. And their story has just been blown away. Yeah. So the one topic that I haven't covered that we won't be able to get to cover this evening, I don't think, is this. Oh, sure we will. (laughs) I I have to sign off, unfortunately, Heron. So, um but yeah, we need to re-explore this topic because I have done a great degree of thinking of the notion of the pathology of recording. Uh, oh, well, that sounds like fun. Oh, so yeah. let's put this off. And my wife that's is going to be away for the weekend, so we could even reconvene over the weekend of recording. Well, whatever. Listen, uh, you know, just give me a ping, and um, if, if it's convenient, we'll do it. We'll do. Well, um, you have fun chatting with your friend about this uh, potential... Uh, what is it? Teaching forum, educational forum? No, we're talking about a learning community. Learning community. My apologies. And yeah, we, we will reconvene and uh, and continue. The that's right. That, that's uh, Sunday evening. So okay, uh, I'll organise it so it won't be on Sunday evening when we. Do yeah. It. Okay. I'll talk to you soon, Aaron. Take care. All right. All right. See ya.